brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm speaking to Paul Harding, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Tinkers, and in a former life, drummer of 90s alternative rock group Coldwater Flat. His latest novel, This Other Eden, has just been released, and I'm delighted to have a chance to talk to him about it, and of course, his writing. Paul, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Well, thank you kindly. It's a great, great pleasure and honor to be here. A question I'm sure you've been asked many times. What does winning a Pulitzer Prize do to the level of expectation from within you? I get the level of expectation from without, but what about from within you? You know, it's funny. I, I mean, it was so unexpected, um, but I quickly learned that <laughs> there are two reactions or ways that you should not perceive winning a Pulitzer Prize. And one is to act like you deserve it. And the other is to act like you don't deserve it, <laughs> um, you know, because you try to unabashedly write a book that is good, right? And then if you are blessed with that kind of recognition, you just don't want people to think, why didn't we give it to that chump? <laughs> um, but then there's, you're right, you know, afterwards, you, you know, the, one of the questions everybody starts asking is, how are you going to follow up your Pulitzer Prize winning debut novel? And you think, you know, if my biggest problem in life is figuring out how to follow up my Pulitzer Prize winning debut, things are not too bad. And I think that, you know, as a writer, I always just naturally, the internal pressure I have on trying to write well was always e at least equal to, if not greater than external pressure that I felt. So, you know, sometimes in my time as a private citizen, you know, in the wolf hour, four in the morning, I'd freak out about it. But really, it was always just, just come back to the, you're the writer, your job is to just go and make the sentences, make the paragraphs, make the stories, and just to trust in, you know, the language, to trust in the art and the process, as they say, but just really kind of stay focused on that and, and not get distracted. I think that, you know, making sure that you don't suffer from distractions about that kind of external stuff. How do you define success for yourself? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's different types of success. I mean, to me, it's, I feel like the longer I write, the better I am at kind of quality control. Like I sort of, I have a pretty good sense of when something's working or when it's not, and you know, when it's ready for other people to look at it, when it's not. One thing I've just learned is just patience. You know, it takes a long time for me to write these books because I just have to live with them for a long, long time. And they have to sort of, the first chapter has to stand up when I look at it again, a year into the process, you know, and that, that kind of, that sense of this stuff is solidly built. It's solidly written. It's not clever. It's not relying on cheap effect, you know, that sort of thing. And so then success is just, I mean, for me, I mean, it's I mean, very, very personally and weirdly particular is I try to go through and try to make myself innocent, you know, of the fact that I wrote the thing. Like I'm satisfied or I feel like it's successful when I feel like I can't hear myself in it. You know, I feel like, oh, this, these sentences are accurate. They're precise. They mean what they say and they say what they mean. And I can't hear me in the background, you know, trying to impress people with handsprings or anything like that. You know, so I'm always just, I consider myself like I'm a servant of the work of art, you know. So if it feels like the book has its own integrity, its own internal integrity. I think of it as like building like little perpetual motion machines that once I feel like they're kind of up and running, I can send them out into the world and they'll kind of 
be able to kind of make their own way, if that makes sense. So that's just success in just the pure sense of like having made a work of art, you know, a book that is consistent with itself and um, succeeds as a as an entire you know piece of writing. How have you managed to strip away those layers then of just being yeah, a human uh, being? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of it. It's it's funny. It's you know, in a former life, I was a drummer, as you know, so I can take some of the discipline of you know becoming a good, say, musician. You know, I think of you know, language and writing. It's a lot of it is just technical. You know, a lot of it is just sort of like you just practice the saxophone for twelve hours a day, so that when you make the art, you've got the chops, as they would call it. In music. Stripping those layers away is actually a a real, literal, concrete skill that you have to become aware of. And then work at. It takes a lot of work, but I really, yeah, it, I, like I really now I can go from doing anything in the world to if we if we turned off you know our microphones right now, I could go and be instantly in whatever I was writing and just be thinking about nothing but the writing itself. But that, it took a long time to do that, especially with you know when Tankers came out as a first novel. I had been you know around Europe and North America touring with the band so it wasn't it was I was a first time novelist but I was you know my mid 40s it wasn't I think if I had been in my 20s it would have knocked me off my perch so there was some of that residual like oh but I've only done it once maybe it was a fluke you know just all those different voices that kind of come and make you you know self doubt self consciousness and you just have to kind of learn how to just kind of quiet all of those things sort of one at a time because any of that stuff is distracting you from the writing, you know, all of your attention should be on the characters, the scenes, the moments that you're trying to render into, into narrative. But you could be an incredibly proficient guitarist and not Hendrix. You could be an incredibly proficient drummer, but you're not John Bonham, right? So, right. so yeah. in order to win the Pulitzer, that's Hendrix and Bonham, right? That's what you need to be. You know, one of the things about prize winning, though, is that it's kind of a contentious spectator sport. <laughs> so I'd been around enough to, to, you know, have gone through what you just assume, you know, when you become the protagonist of that year or that cycle, you just presume that news of your book winning the Pulitzer will have the same effect on people who read as it's had on yourself, which is, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, thank God art is safe for another year. Or, oh, that's the eighth sign of the apocalypse that that <laughs> knucklehead won. And you just assume there'll be some people who think how wonderful that you won and some people who just think that was a you know wasted prize or something like that. So when you take yourself out of it and you return to it and read it as though you're a new reader to it, can you allow yourself to be impressed by it? Because that may be immodest to say, God, I'm impressive. <laughs> it's an incredibly fraught and perilous, <laughs> you, know, you have to make very, very fine distinctions because what you're looking for is you're trying to write, you want to write stuff when you look at it and say, I think people will be, this will bring them joy. Everybody reading these books has a beautiful, complicated mind that, you know, it lights up like a filament. If, you know, I want to light it up, light up people's brains, you know, that sort of thing. So you try to do that for yourself. But partly it's just, I just think of it as the way when I'm working with language, and I, I think the language is smarter than I am. I think of myself as kind of an amanuensis. It's kind of very, feels very egoless. You know, it's just sort of, and again, there's another discipline where you just, you learn how to go into a scene, meet your characters, especially early on, without any presumptions. You don't know anything. You think you do, but whatever you think you know, just shut up 
you know, watch carefully, be quiet, listen carefully, and try to take down what is actually sort of presenting itself to you. It's you're invoking characters, you're summoning kind of characters and scenes and all that sort of stuff. And so it feels very, very selfless, you know, when it's working. It feels like you're just taking dictation, you're discovering it's interrogative, the writing is interrogative. So it's a process of sort of revelation. And I love, you know, it's a, for me, what I try to do is when I am just being quiet and just describing things, and then suddenly something about a character or a scene or something reveals itself, and I go, whoa, I just, I just found something that's absolutely amazing. It doesn't feel like I sort of was separate from the process. I intellectually thought up something that was really great, and then I deployed it. It's almost like discovery. And so then the writing process itself then becomes a process of whatever I discovered and thought was really cool, or like that's something that's way more brilliant than I could have ever just kind of like thought up intellectually. It's kind of a mysterious process. That's what, you know, the, the art, you know, there's something, it's not quite rational. But then what I want to do is then make it so that when the reader comes, follows behind me, what they read reproduces, you know, what was enjoyable for me about writing it, you know, those moments of revelation. How quickly then, Paul, does the leader become the lead? In the sense that you're suddenly led through it. You begin as the leader, but then suddenly you're dragged into different places. That is the perfect description of it, you know. And there's all sorts of ways where you can sort of it can kind of sound hokey or you know, you I just the characters tell me what to do. But there is, I mean, and again, that's even that itself is a skill. It's just like a technique of the answer to the question, how soon does the leader become the follower is as soon as you possibly can put yourself in the position of being the follower. You right. know? It takes a long time. I mean, my writing process is so inefficient. It's like deliberately, I just throw everything, including the kitchen sink into a manuscript early and just sift and collage and test and improvise. And until you start to get these kind of moments, where you're like, ooh, that sort of clicked or something, you know, a spark went off there. So you follow it. And sometimes it's a cul-de-sac, it's a brick wall. And, but other times, if you follow it, and again, just be very attentive to the grain of the language and the, you know, the, the scene, the situation, it'll start to open up on places that you just never would have predicted. And that you, that you just say, okay, I'm, I'm just following you. There's this, it's like a current or momentum. And you just say, I'm just taking it down. How would you describe your emotional attachment to ideas? You know, you wear different hats. I mean, just in my in my own private time as a reader, um, I'm deeply, deeply attached to ideas. But I find that I have to be very careful because when I'm writing novels, novels, at least the way I put them together, they don't work from like concept down. I mean, I have my ideas like, oh, this is this will you know overlap with these kind of things that are important to me that I feel passionate about. But good fiction just doesn't work for me anyways, if I have like a thesis or an argument or a take or something like that. Because then what it does, the danger is for me that it always then over-determines and kind of coerces the characters into just being mouthpieces for me to some degree or another. And that's just a violence I would never want to do to the characters or, or to the reader or to myself or to anybody. Just I, like it just to me, it, when I do it, it all just ends up being kind of like propaganda. You know, it takes a long time to discover who these characters are. And so I love the characters more than I love any kind of ideas that I could impose or induce upon them. The more I speak to you, the more I'm reminded of meditation. It's an almost distancing of different parts of who you are. 
Yeah, it, it is. I mean, there really is that kind of, you know, you don't want to mystify anything, but there are aspects of it that are mysterious because they're not rational. They're, you know, after all, everything is you, you know, I mean, yeah. everything in the books is comes from my experience. It's sort of reality refracted through like the thumbprint of my brain. You know, there's a certain aesthetic, there's a certain type of language, that sort of thing. So in a way, they, they are, they're very kind of rarefied, almost like self portraits or MRIs, literary MRIs, you know. So you want to make it so that when these characters and stories pass through in your mind and then precipitate into English prose, that you don't do any violence to them. So yeah, it's a kind of combination of like total willfulness and total passivity. A lot of musicians talk about that. You know, I was listening to an interview with um, the great saxophone player, Sonny Rollins once. He was kind of doing a YouTube thing or whatever. Kids were asking him questions. This young kid asked him, you know, Mr. Rollins, why do you still, he was in his 80s then, why do you still practice 12 hours a day? And he just said, because I want to be so technically good at my instrument, you know, that kind of technical skilled at my instrument, that when I walk up on stage, whatever comes to me, I could just play the music and I don't have to think about it, you know? So it is that very, with music, in particular, you know, it's easier in some ways because music does seem to come from a mysterious place. It's, you know, the reverberations kind of, of, of the universe. So yeah, it is. It's very, one of the reasons I'm a writer is I like to be in that kind of decoupled state. Time is always very, very weird. When I'm really in the zone, the spell will break and, the, you know, whatever I've been kind of pursuing during an afternoon or whatever. And I'll think, oh my God, I've been writing for 12 hours and it's been like, you know, 45 minutes or something. Very strange. But is that designed like Sonny Rawlins to almost, whilst also giving you the kind of proficiency in the instrument, but also to teach you what's not good, what's not going to work for you? Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's constant experimentation, constant improvisation. But with writing, you don't improvise in front of a live audience. So you have the, ch you have the chance to sort of perfect it, you know. And it goes back to one of your earlier questions you know, what are your motives and what do you do with what you know? Because there's the American jazz critic, Whitney Balliet. I remember him once describing the drummer, Buddy Rich, who was just a monster on the drums. He described his talent as mere virtuosity. He, you know, he's like the kid who knows every word in the dictionary, but he's got nothing to say. You know, I think the, I think the opposite to that would be, I've always thought of it as it's associated with Bob Dylan, but you know, three chords and the truth. Right. You know, it's sort right. of what you do with what you know. Yeah, you know, the chops, whatever chops you have, people say, oh, Charlie Watts was not a great drummer. He, yeah. Who do you think would have been a better, better drummer for the Rolling Stones? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, Neil Peart from Rush? I don't think so. <laughs> Neil Peart, you know, I love Neil Peart. But just, it's aesthetics. It's that mysterious kind of, it's taste, it's aesthetics, you know, that sort of thing. That's the thing, isn't it? Is that I remember once someone playing me Joe Satriani, and it left me feeling very cold. Mm -hmm. Like I understood the virtuosity mm -hmm. of what he was doing, but it's not like watching Hendrix, right? It just wasn't, it didn't work yeah. for me. Why do you think for you, the novel is not a vehicle to tell us how you feel about the world? Because I'm not interested in that. <laughs> you know, I, nothing interests me less than my own opinions or, you know, trying to convince people of my own opinions of things or whatever. There's nothing in which I'm less interested than myself as a writer, but nothing in which I'm more interested than the fact that I am a self, that like this consciousness, this existence, I experience selfhood. There is this I, the first person pronoun I, and it's endlessly 
mysterious and fascinating and engrossing. And so part of this also, what I've discovered, for me, the motive for writing novels, for making art, is never explanatory. It's descriptive. I feel like my job is to go in and make descriptions that really are built, you know, with bricks and mortar, starting with just literal meaning of, you know, smell like, taste like, because what you're doing is you're poetically putting your readers into experiences. I want it to be sort of experiential. And so the recognition, you know, the way when you, you kind of win the reader over, I think a lot of that is when somebody's reading something and they say, I recognize that. I felt like that before. I know that he got it right. That's an accurate description of what it is like. That helps too, because it sort of makes it so, even though it's a novel about a bunch of people living on an island off the coast of New England, or it's about, you know, the Tinkers, it's about a bunch of people, New Englanders, I read about New Englanders. Anywhere, there's the possibility that somebody could still recognize what it feels like to be frustrated, what it feels like to be lonely, what it feels like to be betrayed or to be loved, you know, that those sorts of things. How important then is authenticity in the world that you're creating? Yeah, well, so with this other Eden, the historical authenticity, I stumbled on the story of these people on Malaga Island, it was called, off the coast of Maine. And I found out about this racially integrated settlement on this island that was then evicted by the state of Maine in 1912. And I was immediately sort of attracted to it dramatically and narratively. But at the same time, since I had no organic history or connection with the actual historical place or historical events, I just, after I read two or three articles about it, I just stopped and did no research. And that's the sort of, my job is actually, I couldn't write per se a historical novel about Malaga Island with all the real names and the you know absolute historical facts. And I didn't want to write nonfiction. I didn't feel like I was the person for that book either. So as soon as I had these, you know, sort of several kind of what I thought were just you know, very compelling aspects of that historical narrative, I immediately set about trying to kind of hit critical imaginary narrative mass with what I turned the island and the novel is called Apple Island so that it wouldn't be Malaga. You have to be serious about this. It's not to be coy and sort of dissociate. There's an overlap, but you have to do a lot of thinking about, you know, on the one hand, that island is now, in fact, a state park, that there are aspects of that story that are common domain, you know, historically. But then there are aspects of it that were just, that just I wasn't the person to take a lot of the specific historical facts up and sort of do stuff with them. I found out about the particular story of Malaga after I'd been reading a bunch about the, the history of organized labor in the United States after the American Civil War, partially because the unions were some of the first institutions in the United States to formally advocate for things like civil rights and women's suffrage and this, this sort of stuff. You know, literally just sitting around one night, you know, just thought there must have been all black communities and there must have been racially integrated communities. I have this feeling that people, folks, whatever, people are just raising families and have jobs. And when they're left to their own, they tend to integrate just, you know, like not by social engineering, but just people lay claim to each other's hearts and minds, you know. And so I just sort of Googled, you know, probably something like integrated communities after the Civil War. You know, and all of these places started coming up. And since I worked on this book for a long time, over the course of the years of writing it and, you know, talking with lots of people about it, People from all over the country, I know they're like, oh, you know, I grew up in, you know, insert any state, you know, 
And I remember when, when I was a kid, you know, or I remember my parents telling me about there is this community that was kind of off, you know, a little bit off. And the, you know, the particular story of Malaga seemed to become more and more sort of a familiar story, a familiar narrative, not only of New England and Maine, but of the United States. And then I teach the Old Testament. I teach Shakespeare. And I started realizing it was like Eden, Egypt, you know, the, you know Moses, you know, like displacement. These, you know, there's always an aspect of kind of poverty and socioeconomic injustice and all this sort of stuff. So I started feeling like, wow, this particular story of Malaga is really kind of at the center. There's something quintessential about this, you know, almost like you, what seemed to be like a universal human narrative or experience. And then Malaga turned into Apple Island, but it's in Maine. And I've written my novels. Tinkers is set in Maine. So Maine has this resonance for me. My grandparents are from there. And I've gone to Maine. I haven't lived in Maine, but I go there, you know, went there with my grandparents for years and years and years. And then one of the facts that was just that really struck me when I was reading an article about Malaga is that one of the families that was evicted was actually committed to a place called the Maine School for the Feeble-Minded, which that alone is horrifying. Just to say, we know like the school for the feeble-minded. That's, you know. But that place served as the model for a fictional institution to which one of the protagonists in my first novel, Tinkers, was going to be sent to be committed. So it started to resonate, you know, the, the, you know, the dowsing rod or whatever, you know, started to twitch. And I thought, well, this is very interesting. Here's some points of connection. And then the thing that really sealed the deal, made it irresistible, was I found in subsequent reading in the same month and possibly even, you know, almost to the same week when these people were being um, evicted from the island, the first international congress on eugenics was taking place in London. And I just thought that's it. <laughs> the way that things, stories lay claim to you, even that's mysterious, like it's just profound and substantive. And also <laughs> you start thinking about the basic ingredients of what you think a story, a nascent novel might be made of. To me, one of, the, one of the most affirmative feelings is to, once you get the sense, oh boy, I think there's a novel in there. And if you think, oh my God, that's almost impossible to write. I don't think I'm good enough to do that. And I'm kind of scared witless about trying to be, you know, that's you just say, I'm going to try it then. Because you're always looking to write something that's irreducible. Going back to, I don't want to explain anything. I don't mm. care about my own personal opinions. My job is to do something like describe things that the readers will recognize as as having the irreducible quality of real life. We do thumbs up or thumbs down, or there's the answer, there's the point, partially because that's trivial. And also just personally, and as, a, as a writer, like I live in terror of somebody finishing one of my books and saying, I got the point because that's cheesy. If you're writing about truly mysterious stuff, it, that's coercive to try to insist that there's a point. But also if somebody feels like they've gotten the point of your book, they never have to think about it again. They'll never pick it up. They won't, you know, and I want people to be haunted. I want people to go back. My favorite book, you know, I go back to Absalom, Absalom. Every two years, like, what was in that book? I've read the thing 12 times. Every time I go back, I get that feeling of I can't touch bottom. It just keeps generating meaning every time I go through it. And so trying to do that, just durability. You mentioned the words about being scared witless. I'm interested to know if there was any fear of writing about the African-American experience not being of that experience, especially in times what we live in now? I think that um, I have absolutely no social media 
because I kind of live That's under a rock. That's a good thing. You know? That's a good uh, so, thing. So that you know, when I would hear terrifying stories, you have to do a lot of thinking about that. But again, there's that idea that like, but people live together. People marry one another. People have children and people's parents are, you know, I got a white mom and my dad was from Jamaica. And so that's partly real life. And so these convulsions that the world goes through over this sort of stuff, they're agonizing and they're terrifying, but yet we are in each, in one another's back pockets. We are together, you know, one way or another. Because one of the things that was just important, I realized is I can't be doctrinaire about it. I can't be dogmatic about it. You know, I can't argue about it. I just have to put characters on the page who every single one of them is just given the absolute greatest respect, courtesy, dignity, and individuality as I can, you know? So the sense was that I wasn't writing about a character who was, you know, a half black, half white character. It's here's this person, and then everything else is a predicate of them. You start with here is, to use an example from the book, Esther, and her mother was mixed race and her father was from Scotland. But those are predicates of the human being. And the human subject, the human person, the human individual is always like the sacred, you know, you never violate that person. You never subordinate that person. Everything else is a predicate. So you just have to keep those things in the right order. But then that became something that was one of those challenges that was substantial and fascinating and engrossing. You know, one of the things I wanted to do is use the language so that whenever the narrative or a point of view is situated within the community on the island, that it's the finest writing, it's the most humane, it's the most, it's just the best. It's just the best of what I could possibly muster. That's what I devoted to those, you know, and what they think about and what they, they don't think about, discover who they are as people and portray them as people. And then when you start hearing voices and see, hearing texts and reading letters and other kinds of texts from outside of the community, the language begins to degrade. It begins to objectify. It begins to put predicates and demographic descriptions and check off boxes and starts to really objectify and demean and dehumanize these people. Just working with point of view and just the quality of language and all, all that sort of stuff. So it, it wasn't terror. It was just, <laughs> that's another quality control thing. Boy, you better not screw this up. One false syllable and the whole thing just blows up on the launch pad. And I think of it as like the depth of field of the reader's attention. You know, you just want the reader from the very first sentence to just be like, oh yeah, and then what? And then what? And then what? And never give them any reason to kind of sit back and go, oh, I don't know, that clank, that was an off note. There's something that was mishandled there. But that's terrifying in itself because you can't control how a reader perceives what they are reading. You know, once someone Correct. I, I interviewed a music artist recently and they said to me, you know, once I release this record, it's no longer mine. That's a terrifying feeling. And the book was just published in the United States today. <laughs> so it's like, you know, best of luck. You work on the book for so long by myself. It's, it's so strange because kind of like artistically, I, I go and I go under a rock for 10 years and then I come out you know, show my agent and show my editor. That's a, and then all these other people, you know, you start getting other eyes and other, and you know, and partly I, I wait till very, 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 almost until I think you could put a cover, slap a cover on either end of the manuscript and publish it. I try to get it that perfect so that I can immediately start seeing how people read it how people start reading, you know, the, the, the close to finished product. And that's, I think that's another actual technical skill that you have to learn as a writer is to anticipate 
types of readings. If this particular passage or this, you know, even nomenclature or whatever were to be misread, how would it be misread? If it were to be misread in a way that I don't, like, how would it skip off the atmosphere? How would it flame out? And you're just tweaking expression and always kind of guiding the reader. You know, I feel like I'm with the reader every word. Like, I'm right here. I haven't split, uh, you know. And with the characters, too. I want the readers never left to themselves, you know. Nonetheless, though, I've been reading reviews and stuff already. And it's interesting because already I've read reviews where a reviewer will say, oh, you know, the heart and soul of the novel is here. And I think, you know, I didn't have a reading of the novel like that, but that's great. That works for me. As an artist, you know, one of my unviable rules is that absolute solicitude for the reader and generosity. I just want to give characters, stories, language that just, they can go through and sort of, there's a, a super abundance. Again, like Faulkner is great. You can make your own path, right? And nothing will be forbidden. However you make your way through the book, if you're you know reading it in good faith and you trust it and you give yourself over to it, I think of a work of art as essentially a gesture of fellowship, an offer of fellowship from wherever somebody is from, whatever socioeconomic background, whatever cultural background. You do the best you can to say, I can't imagine anybody going through this and not feeling like they were as welcome and belong going through this novel as any other person on the face of the planet. It's a tall order, like good luck, right? But you try. I mean, that's, you know, again, it's the spirit of the thing. You just, that's one of those things that you just stop and think, oh, if, you know, my friend's grandmother read this, would her dignity be insulted or her humanity be insulted or would it be paid homage to? You know, that feeling of you read a book and you finish and you just think, man, you know, that treated me with dignity. I feel like sort of ennobled almost. And just trying to think about that, you know, respect the readers. Do you ever feel chained to the processes or do you feel liberated by them? It kind of goes back to Sonny Rollins and his 12 hours, really, you know, whether you feel that. I've come to feel liberated by them. Right. <laughs> you know, I still play drums, you know, and now I, during the pandemic, I went back out, I got my little practice pad and I got all my little, you know, these drum books out and just went back and learned all the painstaking stuff that I didn't learn when I was young. When I was young, I was like, let's just get a bottle of whiskey and start playing Rolling Stones covers. You know, I just want to rock, you know? And that, you know, just beauty in that technical stuff. Incidentally, the one thing that I could have learned that I should have learned, the, the secret to playing drums is I'm a left-handed drummer. You just need to learn how to play right-handed as well. My 13-year-old daughter is a left-handed drummer. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Even when I see left-handed drummers, I'm like, that looks weird. But then I sit down and start doing it. But part of it is just learning how to play right-handed. Because then all of a sudden, you have this repertoire of things that you can do. And that's, I was a good enough drummer to realize at a certain point, I was never going to be a great drummer because I couldn't, what as the musicians call it, woodshed practice for eight or 10 hours a day. To me, playing drums was, you did it with other people, collaborative. You know, when, you, when I played music, I, I didn't want to do solo stuff. I wanted to be trying to nail a Stone song or whatever, you know, whatever we were playing. But with writing, you know, writing solitary and the tools, as it were, of writing language, the English language, I'm just infinitely sustained by sort of spelunking through the English language and then when I think about it in terms of narrative, right? So I'm always, you know, I keep these notebooks and I, ooh, I find these great words. And again, not weird esoteric words necessarily, but the exact word. And I actually own two hard copies of the multi-volume edition of the Oxford English Dictionary. One of them is the first edition, one of them is the second edition. And often the definitions are slightly 
different. But I literally spend an hour every day just, I just take one of them, like, oh, we're going to look at R today and just read the dictionary and read through the quotes. And I can read Old English kind of okay. I can read Middle English pretty, pretty well. And so just watching a word go through time and usage after a while. Again, it's very painstaking, but after you get habituated to doing all that technical stuff and, you know, you just, again, you just sort of get up and running and, you know, like you have your chops together. So it's muscle memory. It's just, I'm, I'm habituated to it. So it's not so deliberate. It's not so painstaking. I just automatically do it. And you just find these little treasures. One of the things that I've been thinking about is the word temptation. Temptation originally meant a true test of somebody's character or value. Like if you look at the old John Wycliffe Bible, God tempted Abraham. So at a certain point then you realize, oh, temptation then is an invitation luring somebody into bad behavior by portraying the behavior into which you're trying to lure them as a true test of their character, as a legitimate. And then I was like, oh my God, that's like half of Shakespeare's plays. You know, like, you know, like that, that's measure for measure, you know, the idea of equal measure. What is of equal measure? And so just, just finding that out about that word, you know, the next time I use it, just be able to use it with a little bit finer amount of nuance, right? And if you just take care of each word and then each sentence like that, taking care also not to make it like coy or like you can't get to the sentences, but for the words, you know, you still want to make everything lucid. And that I think of a lot of like making sentences is like um, what animators must do. You know, I spent, you know, like frame by frame getting everything right, but you always have to think, how's this gonna read when you run it at real speed, right? So any given instance of trying to use the language with that kind of precision or whatever, just awareness, you know, the reader won't sense it, but I think cumulatively, it starts to give the chapters in the entire book just like a, a deeper feeling of kind of timelessness and depth and solidity. And since this other Eden is deeply nested or you know, set up kind of a, a relay of earlier literature that comes before and traditions in which I wanted to place it, such as there's a lot of Shakespeare in the novel, there's a lot of Herman Melville in the novel, and there's a lot of Moses in the novel, you know? And so that idea of if you're using language, you want it to feel like it's timeless in the way that it's it's part of this unbroken tradition of human narrative. But at the same time, you want it to feel high resolution, immediate, living, breathing, and contemporary as well. So all these things are just like, that's fun for me. I, I love the idea of how are you going to choreograph all that and not just make it sound like a bunch of pretentious garbage. I, like It's like, oh, I don't know, but I'll, 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 I hope I find out. You, know? well, you definitely did. Have you managed to get the word splunking into any of your works of fiction? I didn't notice it in this other region, but you just said the word splunking, and no one has ever said that to me in a sentence before. So have you managed <laughs> yeah. to get uh, No, I haven't. I, I do often use that because that's how I feel when I'm going through the Oxford English Dictionary. I think I got it originally from when, for years, I taught freshman composition at Harvard University, but it's expository writing at Harvard, you know, T.S. Eliot got a C plus in it. You know, <laughs> but in any case, one of the greatest things about the job there was that I had access to their Widener Library, which at the time, by my kind of back of the napkin reckoning, was the largest open stacked library in like the Western Hemisphere. I think only like the New York Public Library, which is closed stacked, and 
the Library of Congress were bigger. What does so that goes mean? Down and down. Open stack. What it's does just, that mean? Oh, it just means that you are more or less allowed to just wander through the library right. okay. and choose your own books. Right. Okay. Whereas like with the, I think the New York Public Library, you do the research, you figure out what the books are and you give your requests to librarians and then they go into the stacks. And I would just <laughs> practically take a canteen and a sleeping bag and a compass and just go down into. And so I thought of that as spelunking, you know, because the. <laughs> It goes many, many layers down beneath basement layers that end up being about five feet tall. And then you just, you know, come up, oh, here are these chronicles of England from the 17th. I mean, it was a treasure trove. And so I thought of that as spelunking, you know. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things that we do here at the Penguin Podcast is ask our brilliant authors to bring some objects with them. You've already got through the first one, which was the Oxford English Dictionary, two full-size <laughs> multi-volume hard copies. Right. I think you've right. touched upon the drum set and how important a drum set is to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing I would just say about that too is that you know I have a second MFA, Master of Fine Arts degree. I got a second one sitting and seeing the drummer Elvin Jones and his band. Elvin Jones was the drummer for John Coltrane and his classic quartet. And Elvin Jones used to come around to Boston every nine months or so. And dear friend of mine, Ted Silva from the band I was in, he was the bass player, he and I would get tickets to every set that he played Wednesday through Sunday, you know, 10 or 12 sets. And we were always the first people to get tickets. So our table was, I mean, I could practically wipe Elvin Jones's brow <laughs> clear of the sweat. And we just saw him 45 or 50 times. And I just learned so much about art from that. Just he'd come in and with, he had a head cold or he and his wife were arguing or this or that, or they weren't getting paid well enough, no matter what it was. He sat down at that drum set and counted off the first song. It was art, man. They went for Jupiter from the first note to the last. Again, there's all kind of the work ethic of just keep your chops together, be professional, do that. But the minute it's time to actually make art, it was just jaw-dropping art. And no excuses, no self-consciousness, no, no, everything was just total devotion to it. And so that's the, you know, now, you know, I sit at my drums and think, I, I know how he does it, but I can't make myself do it. But when I think about constructing a paragraph or a sentence, I think about that, you know, that, that kind of level of just professionalism and seriousness and commitment and devotion. Is there a self-destructive element to who you are that you need in order to be as intense as you are? I don't, I, I don't know. Part of it is just, I feel like what people call writing, one of the ways I put it is I'm always writing. I'm just always writing. I'm just not typing all the time. And I teach a lot too. So there is, that's been another sort of thing that I just deliberately decided that I always want to have my brain at the level of like when it is when I'm writing. I don't want there to be any drop off the very end of the day if I have a beer and watch a hockey game. Or, even then I suppose I'm writing. But I just wanted to be able to keep it up at that level of just attentiveness to, to my students if I'm teaching to, you know, the manuscript or my characters in my head, whatever. So I don't know if it's self-destructive, but sometimes I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I might be burning up my allotted fuel a little bit quicker than I might otherwise be. But I don't know. I don't, I don't really think so. Tell me about Wenham, Massachusetts, another object that you're telling us about because you can't bring it to us but you can bring us to it, right. the Audubon Sanctuary. Right. So Wenham, Massachusetts is where I grew up and lived until recently, four or five years ago. It's a little village, you know, in the North Shore of Boston, about 20 miles north of Boston. Its original name was Enon, 
And so this it's my second novel is titled Edon. It's set in a fictional version of that hometown. And the Audubon Sanctuary there, which is where a lot of the book Edon is set, it was a wildlife sanctuary. And I was part of the wildlife <laughs> who took sanctuary there when I was younger. You know, I felt very tyrannized by school and just day-to-day life, just, you know, like, why do I have to go to school? Why do I have to learn these things? Why do I have to do all this sort of stuff? You know, I'd much more rather ride the updrafts myself and be out in, the, out in the woods and just reading books and stuff like that. I had so many intense, formative and normative experiences out in those woods as a young child, because I was allowed to kind of go out there and wander in those woods from a very young age. As a young child, as an adolescent, as a young man, as an older man, as a, then late, as a parent, you know, that sort of thing. And so ever since I can remember, there's a correlation to the quality of the light in those woods in that particular place, those New England woods, during the various seasons that is correlated to the deepest emotional experiences that I've had all through my life. If you had to distill it down, I'd say, you know, I'm trying to describe what I remember feeling the last week in November at about 4.30 or maybe even earlier in the afternoon, just as the light was going out of the woods and it was starting to get really cold. And it was so beautiful, but also so stark. And I would often just be thinking, oh, I've got to go home now and do homework or avoid homework, you know, but be anxious about not doing my homework and all that sort of thing. And so it was just piercing, you know, it's just very like, what is in that quality of light and the palette of colors and sounds and smells and stuff like that. Let's talk about painting. Two objects, actually, Mm -hmm. in one. Adrian Court's Asparagus and Charles Ethan Mm -hmm. Porter's Meadow Haystack painting. Why are these pieces of art important to you? Well, I am a great lover of painting in general, art, you know, visual art, and in particular of landscape painting and still life painting. And so when I'm in the early stages of writing a book, any painting as well as you know, piece of music or literature or whatever that's kind of making my brain glow, I just throw it into the manuscript somehow or another. I just literally plug it into a scene here or there, or put a passage in and just kind of, again, improvise and wait and see if it ever synthesizes with the rest of the story. So in the case of Charles Ethan Porter, he was a black painter in the United States, late 19th century. And when I was trying to invoke a book. I didn't know what I was writing about. So I just took a minor character from Enon, the previous novel, who in Enon is 80 or 90 years old. And I just put her on this big meadow in her estate when she was 10 years old. And she's just kind of a little wise acre of a kid. And I was just working with a scene with like her and her mother and her family. And I was reading about Charles Ethan Porter. And I came upon this beautiful painting of his, of a haystack, a big meadow that had just been hayed. And I was like, I think that the meadow therein has just been hayed. And so I thought, if this is almost like his painting, I just literally plunked him down in the far distance of the scene. And at some point, somebody says, who's that guy out in the meadow painting? And somebody just says, oh, he's, you know, I don't know, he's here because dad, you know, that that sort of thing. There he was. Then when I found Malaga Island later, it was just one day, I literally went back, I saw him in that scene and I said, that is that person out there in the meadow is from Malaga Island. Somehow or another, he got from Malaga Island to my fictional hometown of Enon. And a lot of what writing the novel is going to consist of discovering how he ended up to be there. And then the Adrian Court, I, I think Adrian Court's still lives are just exquisite. They are very small paintings of a little bundle of asparagus or some gooseberries or some shells. And I love them so much. The character in this other Eden, his name is Ethan, he's the painter, and he ends up having a kind of romance with this Irish 
girl. She's a housekeeper on this estate. And the estate is stuffed with all sorts of paintings. And I just thought, oh, you know, part of her growing affection for him, she wants to show him a painting. And I thought, I'll just have her show him one of my favorite paintings. Uh, and so then it was just because then I, what I got to do is I got to write a description of a painting. And I think in painterly terms, I think in terms of color and palette and light and all that. And so, yeah, I just, you know, I love putting paintings in my novels. Simple as that. It's a fun challenge, too. So if I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I want to get myself some writing notebooks, which is your final object, are you recommending yep. Bob Slate Stationer? Absolutely. <laughs> yep. I've used certain notebooks that, that I have just become, I'm not a sort of fetishistic person. I, you know, a lot of times I write on uh, post-it notes and napkins and staple them into these notebooks, but they have to be this spiral bound four by six inch notebook that they called the Mount Tom. <laughs> and uh, there's a certain point at which somehow or another they stopped making them. And I was just devastated. And then I finally found from them, but a new kind of bespoke little notebook that they have made. And this time I bought like 25 of them because I was like, I'm not going to get caught short, you know, for this. And it turns out that they're not having them made anymore again. And I just, I don't know. I just love them. They're just, they, you know, they're these beautiful, the paper is beautiful. Just, I, again, it's just purely a little aesthetic pleasure. And I just love them. And over the, you know, I have maybe 20 of them filled up right now. And so there's this pile of these busted up notebooks with all sorts of things stapled into them. Because I, I kind of am a junkie for ephemera too. And so I put little postcards and pictures or press flowers in them. Or if I've been writing a bunch of stuff on post-its, I'll staple the post-its in. And so they become almost these little art objects in and of themselves, or these little artifacts that are kind of cool. Paul, I genuinely could speak to you for hours and hours and hours. We could do a part one, a two, three, four. You are a fascinating. <laughs> I know human we've being. just gotten under sale. I know, <laughs> I know, right? That's what it feels like. Oh. The feeling is mutual. It would be just, it'd be great to, to spend the rest of the day doing this. Oh, do I have to wait then another ten years for oh, another novel? Boy, that's the big question. Hopefully not. <laughs> I feel as I have felt at the end of all three novels now, which is I can't imagine coming up with another idea that sustain that will. I think it's just I just have to kind of like go off and just not think about it for a while and just do what I do. It's just like read, take notes, write, look in the dictionary, just do what I keep doing. And you just one day there'll be a little spark, you know. I have no idea. I, one thing I've learned though is that you can't rush it. You just should not rush it. Because if you hurry it and you put it into print too soon, you know, it's going to be out there forever. It may not be in print, you know, it may not be read, but you know, that's going to have your name on it. So it's worth the extra time to get it as best as you can make it. Well, thank you for writing this work of art, which has no argument, no thesis, just this purely descriptive and wonderful world you've created. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, speak with me. It was a wonderful conversation. Paul, thank you so much. What a conversation. And I'm so glad that you could join us. And importantly, thank you for listening wherever you are. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. And if you'd like to find out more about this other Eden and other books we've been talking about on the podcast recently, all you have to do is head over to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and I shall see you next time. Thank you.